It's early 1974, and late in the night, a Boeing 707 descends toward the lights of a runway in Chicago. The plane is an ordinary one, except for one detail. There's tape covering the area where the name of the airline should be. Soon, the plane is met on the runway by a convoy of armored trucks. Each of the trucks is loaded with stacks and stacks of silver bars. With the trucks in position, a group of armed men step down from the plane and begin to help transfer the silver from the trucks to the 707. The men work in silence. They're used to hard labor. And they're the silver buyer's unique idea of a crack security team. They're not trained guards, unless you count their experience protecting cattle from coyotes. They're all cowhands from the Circle K Ranch in Texas each placed highly in a shooting contest held at the ranch. And the prize was inclusion in this very secretive mission for their very secretive boss. Around the same time the plane is being loaded in Chicago, a similar scene is unfolding at an airport in New York. Another 707, guarded by cowboys fresh off the range, met by another convoy of armored trucks full of silver. In total, the cowboys are loading three jets full of silver tonight. That takes a while because the cowboys are transferring 40 million ounces of silver onto the planes. That's more than 1,000 tons of precious metal. It's a large percentage of the total supply of silver bullion currently available on the world market. When each plane is loaded and cleared for takeoff, the silver and the cowboys head across the Atlantic. Their destination is Zurich, where the silver will be stored in Swiss banks. But some professionals across the globe make it their business to keep a close eye on the silver market. They're traders and brokers and regulators. Almost none of them know who it is that just bought all this silver. The brokers are frantic. They worry that this individual is well on the way to cornering the world market and then being able to dictate silver prices on a whim. And that's a big deal because silver isn't just used for jewelry or fancy tea sets. It's also used in industrial products like photographic film, antibacterial dressings, and even semiconductors. It's sometime in the spring of 1974 that the brokers learn the name of the mysterious buyer. And it's then, according to author Harry Hurt, that the brokers begin to panic. All over the world, they're asking, who is Nelson Bunker Hunt? From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. This is a story about a silver buyer named Nelson Bunker Hunt and his brother and business partner, Herbert Hunt. Two mysterious figures on an equally mystifying hunt. We'll use our first names throughout the story since we have so many hunts to keep track of. The two Texan brothers started out on their quest for silver sometime in the early 70s. They bought so much of it that a peek into their bank vaults would have astounded even Scrooge McDuck himself. The brothers claimed that their intentions were simple. They just thought silver was a good investment. But governments feared that the brothers' real goal was to corner the silver market. I'll say right here that we reached out to the Hunt family multiple times for comment on this story, but their representative declined to speak with us. In any case, the Hunt brothers' efforts came to a head on March 27, 1980 a day that would come to be known as Silver Thursday. The price of silver suddenly dropped off a cliff, a plunging green line on the CRT monitors of Wall Street analysts. 
The crash threatened the entire financial system and major parts of the world economy. It's a tale involving the Bank of England and a panic that brought the West's financial system within a hair's breadth of a crash like 1929. The true story is so good, someone may even bid for the film rights. Of course, an event this big had people paying attention at the time. The silver crisis made headlines around the globe, even as the story competed for attention with massive events like the Iran hostage crisis and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And yet, Silver Thursday has been eclipsed in our collective memories. We've had far too many financial disasters to keep up with since then, including the savings and loan crisis, which happened at the end of the same decade. And the parallels between Silver Thursday and the real estate crash of 2008 are fairly evident. They include complex financial instruments, overextended banks, and the big guys insisting on a government-arranged bailout. Bunker and Herbert Hunt have enough money to do anything they want, and their frantic pursuit of the world's silver supply takes them all over the globe. There are meetings with royal families, and swanky balls, and horse races, and unconfirmed details of elephants rampaging on airplanes. The Hunt brothers can do all this because in the 70s, they are members of the wealthiest family in the world. Of course, the events of this story will change that. And yet, from the Hunt brothers' perspective, the quest for silver wasn't about greed. It was about providing safety for their family. It was also about making their father proud. It turns out, vast wealth can't insulate you from one of the most common tragic flaws in human history, daddy issues. Why would two of the wealthiest men on the planet risk it all to fill Swiss bank vaults with silver? To answer that question, we'll track Bunker and Herbert's exploits around the world. But to really understand their motives, we need to meet their father, Popsy. This is the first part of our four-part series on Silver Thursday. This is episode one, The Brothers Hunt. It's the fall of 1960 at the expansive Hunt family estate in Dallas, Texas. A perfectly manicured lawn slopes downward from a mansion modeled after George Washington's Mount Vernon, complete with two-story columns and a steepled roof. Bunker and his younger brother Herbert are in their 30s, and they're out playing touch football on the lawn. Bunker is fat and boisterous. Herbert is trim and fastidious. They stick closely together in business and in life. And even though the brothers are well into adulthood, they're still competing for their father's attention. In this case, the game to compete in is touch football. Their father, H.L. Hunt, looks on from the mansion's porch. H.L. is in his early 70s with tufted white hair, large eyes, and soft features. Bunker and Herbert are teamed up with their youngest brother, Lamar, in this gridiron battle. The opposing team is also made up of sons of H.L. Hunt. Sons by two different women H.L. married while he was still legally married to Bunker and Herbert's mother. There hasn't been much stability in Bunker and Herbert's family life since they found out about the other two families. Bunker and Herbert's mother died a few years before, and their father moved on to his other wives and families. So, as members of what's known as the first family, Bunker and Herbert have to compete more than ever for his attention. As Bunker and Herbert play against their half-brothers on the lawn, they don't even know how much of their father's fortune they're set to inherit. Which is a shame, because their father is the richest man in the world. H.L., the man looking out from the porch, 
made his fortune in the oil business. Mostly oil fields here in Texas, though he does have some in the Middle East. He's also kind of a weird guy. HL believes that crawling on the ground is a central exercise, and is even said to have demonstrated his crawling in front of then-President Eisenhower on a trip to Camp David. He markets a medicine called gastromagic that he says works wonders on your colon, and he's an early Western adopter of yoga. But HL's true passion is far-right politics. He is against the UN, against the war on poverty, against Medicare, against central government aid of any sort. And in his ideal land, votes would be distributed according to the amount of taxes you paid. He writes a syndicated newspaper column about how America is losing the values that made it great. As HL says in the column, we can turn back the clock. But what's more relevant to his sons is HL's obsession with conspiracy theories. He's convinced the government's out to get him. To better understand the environment HL created for his sons, I talked to the author Artis Burst. She's a writer who grew up in Texas who wrote a book called The Three Families of H.L. Hunt, which, like it says in the title, chronicles H.L.'s families. And she explains the worldview that H.L. Hunt passed on to his sons. I think that Texans always were a little paranoid and isolated from the rest of the country. We had our own way of doing things, and we were very proud. And so I think They were reflections of the political and social and psychological reality of the world that they all grew up in. Burst points out that H.L.'s paranoia is reflected in the way he organized his businesses, and even in his reluctance to turn that empire over to his sons. There was no business to inherit. Everything continued to be extremely fragmented, which I think is also characteristic of high level of distrust. You don't centralize because then somebody can come in and control things and know your business. And so they got pieces of the action and they almost were given an opportunity to prove themselves. I don't think it was viewed that way, but that's what was going on. Herbert Hunt gets his opportunity to prove himself in the 1950s. And during that time, he realizes that he has to do more than impress his father. He has to find a way to fix his father's mistakes. By the early 60s, H.L. is getting more and more obsessed with both his health theories and his right-wing politics. So much so that he's neglecting the oil business that prints his family money. Instead, he's putting his energy into HLH products, the makers of gastromagic. People outside the family think the food company is actually losing money. And to make matters slightly worse, the Hunt oil business is in relative decline. One reason the food company is hemorrhaging cash is that H.L. Hunt is using the HLH Foods Marketing Department as a propaganda machine for his political messages. There's this documentary called H.L. Hunt, The Richest and the Rightest. The film explains that Hunt's food company buys newspaper ads in large markets across the country, but the ads alternate every other day between food and politics. The narrator of the documentary is skeptical of this arrangement. Does right-wing patriotism really sell chicken backs and mashed potatoes? Once Herbert realizes why HLH Foods is a money pit, he has to find a way to right the ship. And he does this by quietly making sure that the most important oil deals are routed to his office before they ever reach his father, who he thinks might screw them up. But HL catches wind of this, and he isn't happy. 
One account in Harry Hurt's book has HL grabbing Herbert by the collar and dragging him into an elevator, shouting, You're no son of mine! Another has HL simply informing Herbert that he should tell everyone he's not running things anymore. While Herbert is trying and failing to win over his father by being the sober businessman, Bunker is out taking risks in the oil fields. And also failing. Numerous authors point out that Bunker and Herbert need to do well in business in order to please their father. Given the uncertainty of their inheritance, they also feel a need to make their own fortunes. And Bunker is the one who chooses to follow most closely in his father's footsteps. Bunker doesn't just want to do well in the oil business. He wants to find massive new fields like the ones his father exploited back in his day. His first efforts to achieve this don't go so well. Bunker spends millions drilling empty wells in Texas and Pakistan. And then he decides to go to a country that's relatively new to oil producers. Somewhere he can get in on the ground floor. Libya. Libya is big, and much of it remains unexplored. Artist Burst explains a potential problem with this decision. I, I don't think that Bunker and Herbert were, or HL, were very sophisticated about international relations. So I don't think they had a clear view of what they were getting into or, or what might happen. When Bunker first arrives in Libya, he treks far out into the desert to visit the land for which he has purchased the mineral rights. The claim is shaped like a T, Bunker says, for Texas. When he arrives, he finds that his geologists had misread the maps and that one whole side of the T turns out to be submerged in a literal sea of sand. Bunker runs out of money and has to partner with British Petroleum to search for oil on the land he owns. BP will drill wells in exchange for half of any oil they find. Bunker gets the other half. And it doesn't take long before our BP drilling crew hits a gusher. They tap into a reserve that geologists estimate is one of the largest in the world. And overnight, Bunker Hunt becomes the richest man in the world, even richer than his eccentric father. Bunker doesn't need his dad anymore, but he still wants to win his affection. This poses a problem, because the old man is getting crazier. It's not necessarily true that H.L. Hunt has gotten deeper into conspiracy theory, but it is true that he's gotten brazen enough to say the things he thinks out loud. He gives an interview to a Houston TV station in 1965. They're not really there. Do you think you're over-alarmed a bit about the way things are going? However alarmed I am, I don't think I'm alarmed enough. Better government would result from the rule of the majority than it would from the rule of a few select minorities that don't represent the majority. The interviewer points out to HL that Lyndon Johnson, who was president at the time, did in fact win election by the majority of the people. Nevertheless, HL digs himself deeper. Do you question, since he's been elected, but what he has been dominated by the Negro contingent? And, uh... and even though Bunker and Popsy are two of the richest men on the planet, Bunker sees the world through the eyes of his father, through the eyes of conspiracy. As we'll see, it's a view that leads Bunker to make unorthodox decisions with his money. G. 
you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. By the early 1970s, Bunker is making huge amounts of money from his Libyan oil field. And he's deeply worried about protecting that wealth. It's making him paranoid. According to journalist Stephen Fay, Bunker calls one of his employees late at night in the hopes of addressing his concerns. The employee is in Washington when he receives the phone call, but Bunker insists that he catch a flight to Dallas the first thing the next morning. There's someone Bunker wants him to meet. When the employee arrives in Dallas, he's introduced to a man who is supposedly a financial consultant to Bunker. But the man isn't talking about stocks and bonds. Instead, the consultant is talking about a plot for world domination. The conspirators are the Hunt's rivals in the oil business, the Rockefellers. According to Fay, the consultant says the Rockefellers will use something called the Trilateral Commission to take over the world. They will do so by making banker David Rockefeller the richest man in the world even richer than Bunker Hunt. Here's how they thought it would happen. The plot would start with Nixon resigning from the White House, and this was after the Watergate scandal broke, but before it was obvious that Nixon would resign. Then, Vice President Gerald Ford would become president, and Ford would name David Rockefeller's brother, Nelson, as vice president. Then, Vice President Rockefeller would declare an end to the Depression-era policy that put strict limits on how much gold Americans could own. And brother David Rockefeller would have inside information. So he could buy up all the world's gold as soon as this happened, making him the richest man in the world. Bunker's employee thought the story was ridiculous. But in the years after this meeting, the strange financial consultant proved to be right. In 1974, Nixon resigns. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Ford becomes president and makes Nelson Rockefeller his vice president. I, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller, do solemnly swear. The Depression-era policy on gold ends. And I must say to you that the state of the union is not good. The only detail the consultant got wrong was the part about David Rockefeller buying all the gold on the planet and taking over the world, but Bunker didn't care about that. He was convinced, more than ever, that he needed something tangible to hold onto in a world where powerful forces might decide to destroy him. The cash from his oil fields wasn't enough. Artist Burst explains her view of his mindset. The world is gonna come to an end and you're gonna take care of yourself and your family. Family's very important. And currency is not going to work. So what is the ultimate security? having a vault full of silver because then you can go out and take a piece of silver and trade it for food or security or a place to live or water. So silver is about family. And who better for Bunker to team up with on his quest for silver than his brother, Herbert? On the next episode of Eclipsed, disaster strikes Bunker's Libyan oil fields and the brothers begin their silver quest in earnest.
Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael, $50 an ounce, Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. A special thank you to civil rights legend Phil Hirschkop, who gave us a much better idea of what the Hunt brothers were all about. Special thanks also to Diana Enriquez, Artist Burst, and Henry Jarecki for talking to us. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsedcampsidemedia.com or tweet at us at eclipsepod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm at Bijan Cakes. We also have a phone number. Leave us a message, pitch us a story, or tell us your nightmares. Give us a call at 949-490-2127. You might be featured on an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.